A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by the Glenner family in memory of Rabbi Yisrael Yaakov Morgenstern, who was born... On July 26, 1917, to Rabbi Avram Meir and Esther Morgenstern, he was a Ben-Achar Ben, six generations from the Kotzker Rebbe of Menachem Mendel Morgenstern. Rabbi Suryakov survived the Holocaust being in 12 different concentration camps. In 1944, at the end of the war, he was on the death march from Natzweiler, a concentration camp on the border of France and Germany, back to Dachau. He was liberated in Dachau by the Americans on May 7, 1945. Rabbi Sol Yaakov kept his parents alive in the Warsaw Ghetto because he would go out to look for food and bring it home to his parents so his father wouldn't have to risk his life by going out. He was clean-shaven, and the Nazis targeted Rabbanim with a beard for extra cruel sport. One day his father, Bavram Meir, turned to him and said, Mein Kind, you're Mekayim the mitzvah of Kibbut Avaim, Kemay Shekasov Batayra. Rabbi Sol Yaakov never forgot this. It made a major impression on him. Unfortunately, in the summer of 1942, Rabbi Yaakov's parents, Rabbi Rameir and Esther, and his sister, Rachel Brandel, were sent to Treblinka and perished there the same day they arrived. Many years later, his daughter asked her father why he survived the war. He answered her, There was no reason for me to survive the war. I survived the war only because Hashem wanted me to survive. I became a greater Maiman after the war than even before the war. It, however, if I had to give a reason, it was because of the kibbut of aim to my parents. And that brings us uh, right in, a beautiful introduction to this Rabbi Sol Yaakov Morgenstern's ancestor, the Kutzker, and um, spoke last year about the Kutzker, but uh, so much more to speak about him and how appropriate it is for a descendant of a Kutzker to bring us back to that world of the mid-19th century in the world of Kutsk. And we're going to speak a little bit about Ishbitz and the split between Kutsk and Ishbitz. Before we get to that, I want to read another few letters that I received from both the Simchazelig Rieger recent episode as well as the Chernobyl recent episode. Someone submitted about the Simchazelig Rieger, the Dying of Brisk episode, which we had recently in uh, a funny funny joke, story, I don't know what to call it. Here it goes. In Europe, they used to say tongue-in-cheek that every suffix in halacha is really a sfake sfeka. Number one, there's the suffix itself, 
And number two, there's always the possibility that it's possibility that Rabsim Chazalig would be Matir. So that's 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 a that's a cute uh, addition to Rabsim Chazalig's way of paskening Shilas. We get back to the Chernobyl um, episode, part two specifically. I I mentioned something that I, I think was misunderstood, probably because I didn't make myself clear. So I take responsibility for that. Uh, I spoke about Hasidic dress, and I mentioned how there are those who cynically see it as related to the weather conditions and the mud and the snow of the locales of Eastern Europe. And I, I meant to say it, and I thought I did, in a very general sense, not specifically about Skver and not specifically about Chernobyl. I was speaking in general about Hasidus. I think I even specifically mentioned Ger and other groups that is something that is said in a very general way. Apparently, I didn't make myself clear, and many thought that I had meant that this was the reason, specifically that in Skver they wear boots. Um, and, and therefore I got about 45 emails correcting me that isn't that the mud and the weather has nothing to do with why in Skver uh, they wear boots. It has to do with a different reason, which I'll mention in a second, and um, some of them were unnecessarily belligerent, but most of them were just nice and correcting uh, that and clarifying it. So I want to clarify that I said the whole thing about Hasidic dress because I wanted to mention that it's a great topic, and I hope to get to it one day, the story of Hasidic dress, and uh, the size of the socks and the pants and the boots and the shoes reminded me of it, and um, and, uh, and that's why I mentioned it. But in Skver, as in Chernobyl, they, the uh, the origin of the story, as I'll just quote one of the many letters I received, of the Skvera boots was that Rabbi Yaakov Yosef became a grandchild in Bells by marrying Rabbi Sacher Daiv of Bells's granddaughter. And he lived there after his wedding. When someone came to Bells, they were expected to adhere to the Belzer dress code, and he didn't want to wear knickers and high socks. So he just, uh, a few, few different versions that, that, I, that I received, but um, it seems that he preempted the problem by wearing boots on top of the socks, and therefore uh, he always wore the boots, and it became the custom in Skver to wear the boots. And that's why in Skver they wear boots, because of this connection to bells. But either way, the story about Hasidic dress is still a good story. Um, here's another letter I got, which I enjoyed, and I'm sure you will as well. Just listen to your latest podcast where you say offhandedly, I'm cynical about plenty of things, but not Hasidic garb. My Rebbe, a very American Talmud of Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim, once gave the example of the square boots in admiration for the way they connect the Hasidim to the previous generations. If I'm not mistaken, I believe he compared it to Yitzchak Avinu naming the wells with the same name as Avraham named them, and Rabbeinu Bechaya there comments that it was for this same reason. But more importantly, I'm sure your listenership would appreciate an episode about the things that you are cynical about. So maybe we'll get to that one day. Um, uh, we'll have to find the right and appropriate platform for that to, to do a cynical episode. Um, here's one final one, another letter, a short one. Remichel Tversky Shlita was asked, what kind of Hasidim are the Tverskys? He said, we aren't Hasidim, we are Rebbes. Very cute. Um, so before we go into Kotsk and Ishbitz and the dispute between the two, so I just wanted to mention that in case you haven't gotten it already, which probably most of you have, but this week's Mishpacha magazine you definitely don't want to miss out on. 
Um, is a very, very interesting article. It happens to have been written by me, but the topic is a good topic um, about Reb David Kamenetsky and the book that he authored on Reb Chaim Oizer Grzensky. And uh, a fantastic book, and I had the privilege of interviewing him and hearing about um, Reb Chaim Oizer and the book and the research and, you know, and back in, and of course about the author, uh, Reb David, who's an impressive amazing researcher and scholar and Talmud Chacham and very nice person as well. But the uh, work that he did on Reb Chaim Meiser is a great book to have if you can get it. And it's a great article, um, if I might say so myself, so you want to see that. There's also in this week, once we're mentioning Mishpacha, the For the Record that I write together with Davi Safir is also a good story about the Arsameach and the alleged murder of the Arsameach, which he was not murdered, but there was rumors going around that he was uh, during the post-mayhem uh, of uh, the revolution and the uh, after World War One. So that's a good story as well. So you're going to want to check those two out and, of course, all the other fantastic articles in the magazine. In other news in Jewish history, again, before we get to cuss, there's just too much going on, so I have to share it with you. I recently received a historic video that doesn't quite rival the original video that we saw years ago of the Chavetz Chaim at the Knesset Gedal of Agudis Shalom Vienna, but this is almost there. I think it's a, a close second place. This is in Camp Masifta in upstate New York in 1942. And you see a, a, a video that was just recently discovered. You see Reb Shloyme Haiman, the Rosh Hashiva walking. I think you see Reb Shagaf Haivah Mendelovich, if I'm not mistaken, and Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Kaplan, the Mashkiach, the, the Rashiva Mashkiach in Beis Merishalian. And um, so uh, that's a, a, also a historic video that was just discovered and and uh, mentioned the Chavetz Chaim. Uh, so there's also a new picture of the Chavetz Chaim that was just discovered. Seemingly the Chavetz Chaim, hard to know exactly. So um, lots of Jewish history things going on. It's always good to keep uh, abreast of the latest uh, uh, discoveries, but we have to get to Kutsk. And Kutsk, always so fascinating. I miss Kutsk. I miss going to the city of Kutsk, to the Kutskers' kever, and also to go to Ishbitz and the Ishbitzers' kever. And um, so instead of the trips, we'll just talk about them a little bit. Last year on the Kutskers' yard site, almost a year ago, we had um, you know, stories of the Kutsk and a bit of his background. In the last couple of minutes, I managed to get into the story of what's called Yena Lel Shabbos, that, that Friday night, that Lel Shabbos, which we'll find out uh, today in more in depth if it did ha- if it happened altogether, which it, you know, probably didn't. But, um, it, it definitely became part of, uh, part of the legend and the mystique. Of this, um, of this, of this whole story, this whole episode of of, the, of Kutsk and Ishbitz. Um, so, uh, I also mentioned it in passing on the Ishbitz uh, um, episode, and I mentioned it in passing on the Gare succession episode. So, I did mention a few times. I just wanted to be able to go more in depth this time. Um, like I said, in those other times, the Hasidim in Poland would say, The ones who know don't say, and the ones who say don't know. So if I'm going to go ahead and say, that means I don't know. And if I don't say, that means I do know. So I definitely don't know. 
Um, and uh, so just to give a few different versions of what happens to try to piece together uh, what exactly was there. There's been so much. I mean, there's there's very few figures. And I guess the Baal Shem Tev, probably Reb Nachman of Breslov, but the Kutzker is one of those who's one of the most written about Hasidic leaders in the history of the movement. Uh, Yehuda Leib Levin, of course, has base Kutsk. It's an internal Ger version of events. There's Mayor Urian's book of Hasne Bayer Bekutsk, the, 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 the bush, the, the burning bush in Kutsk. Of course, Abraham J. Heschel, who wrote about Kutsk in Yiddish, because he said the only way to understand Kutsk, Kutsk is in its original language. Martin Buber wrote a lot of things that never happened in Kutsk, but he thought they did, so he wrote that. Um, Menashe Unger has a book which is about Kutsk, and Dr. Joseph Fox, Yitzchak Alfasi, Simcharaz, it goes on and on and on and on. All great books. And of course there's Tyra, there's the Eil Tyra, there's MS Ve'amuna, which is the most popular, and then there's Amud Ha'emes, which Ramesh B'tzal Alter before the war put out, and many, many more books and articles about it. I remember uh, sometimes going to these bookstores and book sales and wondering, should I go ahead and and buy another one? And, and I'm not going to even I'm not going to read all of the books on cuts. I have a few that I've read, and it's just uh, you know too hard to keep up with all of them. There's other topics, believe it or not, that uh, that are interesting as well. Um, so in the years of isolation, we know that the Kutzker spent the last 20 years of his life in pretty much isolation. We'll talk about that also. Um, how, how much was he isolated? Was he completely isolated or was it not? But there's, there's, uh, he definitely was somewhat isolated. And uh, the question is, how is there a Kutzker Hasidus after that? The Rebbe's not around. And we know that the whole way that the court of a Rebbe, the court of a tzaddik works, is the relationship between the Rebbe and his Hasidim. And here, the Hasidim, for the most part, um, the Rebbe is inaccessible. He's he's secluded. How do they how do they how do they grapple with that? So uh, there's a very interesting uh, testimony that I heard from uh, from the late uh, Dr. Tzipi Kaufman. She she brought out from the sefer that was written at the time by a Hasid of the Kutsker, a Meir Tzvi of Zamush. And he and he writes there again. This is a free translation. This is not the original Hebrew. I have lived in close proximity to the Rebbe for several years now. For some years already, my thoughts have not left the Rebbe for a moment. Moment, rather, my heart is constantly bound up with him, with, with cords of love, voices ava, and his image is before me that I might obey him for his service and performing his bidding in avodas Hashem. Nevertheless, I have countless matters in the depths of my heart that I myself know not whether they originate with the right side of truth or the left side of falsehood, nor whom I might turn to to ask. I could say, I shall go to the Ishali Kim, the Rebbe, and place my matter before him, and he shall surely judge me, for he is the teacher among the Jewish people. But all this time, his guidance is in the form of Hester Panim, owing to our many sins. And for this reason, my innards perish within me. I know not what to do. An amazing, amazing testimony. That's why I wanted to read it, because it's, uh, even though you lose some of it in the translation into English, um, that here's someone who's a chassid of the Kutzker, and he is struggling. He doesn't know what to do, because his Rebbe is secluded. He's inaccessible. What do we do? He can't maintain a relationship with the tzaddik, with the Rebbe, 
and he's definitely Katsker Chassi to see how his he's grappling if it's truth or falsehood, which is the classic uh, Katsker dilemma um, when the with the the striving for pure truth, and that's and that's how you know an in, in, an interesting way of how the Chassidus manages to continue uh, even afterwards is that there's this this yearning to go see him, and there's somehow he becomes the Rebbe of himself. The Chassid becomes his own Rebbe. Now the truth of the matter is that the Chidush Yerebbe, the first who would become eventually the first Ger Rebbe, he sort of managed the court during the years of the Kutzker's conclusion. Of course, there was the Kutzker's children, and he wasn't that secluded, which we'll get to also. But um, but this letter kind of brings us into the um, into the uh, into the story. Now, last time when we spoke about the Kutzker, we spoke about his biography a little bit that he had gone to the Chayz of Lublin, and then he left the Chayz as already he was young. He was, was a, already a married teenager, but he was young, and he went with the Yidak Kaddish Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak uh, to uh, Pshischa, and in 1827, when the Yidak Kaddish, the Holy Jew of Pshischa, passed away, so he followed Rabbi Simcha Bonim of Pshischa. Um, I'm sorry, 1812, the year that Kaddish passed away, and then Rabbi Simcha Bunim took over. In 1827, Rabbi Simcha Bunim uh, took over, uh, passed away, and and most of the Pshischa Hasidim followed the Kutzker to Tomashov and then to Kutsk. And uh, during the the years of his leadership, when he was when he was with the Hasidim, so I mentioned last year many stories. There, of course, there's more stories. And sayings, the, the Kutzker was a master of the one-liner. He had the best one-liners in history. And a lot of them had a lot of depth to understand them. He once said um, in about the Pshischa custom of davening late, which um, some within the Hasidic world were not, were not happy about, and definitely those outside of the Hasidic world were not happy about. So he said, he said, we serve Hashem while others serve the Shulchan Arach. That was the Kusker's line. We're serving Hashem. We have to be prepared to serve Hashem. You can't just get up in the morning and serve Hashem. You need hours and hours of preparation. And then you could do it. The others, they serve the Shulchan Aruch. It says in the Shulchan Aruch to, uh, to do it. Now, of course, you can't take you know just that at face value because obviously the Shulchan Aruch is in the service of Hashem too. I once quoted this Kutzker when I was on a trip. I was giving a tour and it was to a yeshiva and the Rebbe of the yeshiva was with his students and I was the tour guide. And I said, we were in Kutsk, and I said over this story. And afterwards, uh, the Rebbe called me over, pulled me over to the side, and he said, um, do you ever want to uh, be a tour guide for this yeshiva again? I said, I would love to. So he said, don't ever say that story again. <laughs> so I almost got fired for saying this story. So apparently it's controversial. Um, the Kutsk was uh, like Pshischa, but Kutsk was Pshischa to the extreme, so... He 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 wasn't you know wasn't uh, impressed. I mentioned this last year about uh, the miracles, the mifsim that other rebbes would do, and he would very you know had a play on the words. He would say oisais u mifsim baadmas benecham. The miracles, the mifsim are admas benecham. They belong to the non-Jewish world. They don't the, the magic and and, the, and that's not that's not for us. So he was you know being quite uh, critical of that approach. He he was you know they collected all his sayings, and eventually years and years after his passing, they collected it and published it into Svarim, which people study today. And there's commentary written on it, but he himself never wrote. Uh, he wrote and he would burn his writings. He never really never even prepared for publishing. 
someone asked him why. He said, why should I write Svarim? So people should, what are they going to do with it? During the week, no one has time to learn from Svarim because they're busy with work, they're busy with family, with all kinds of mundane things. So the only time they have to learn is on Shabbos. So they're going to open a Sefer on Shabbos. When are they going to do it on Shabbos? They're busy in shul, they're davening, they're eating, the suda. The only time they have to open a Sefer on Shabbos is after the Cholent, on Shabbos afternoon. Now what's going to happen after the Cholent? They're going to fall asleep. So am I going to publish a Sefer so that people can fall asleep on it? So he didn't publish any Sefer. Um, one time a chassid came to him and said, uh, I need Parnassah. Now the Chatzka did not like when Hasidim came to him and asked him about Parnassah. Unlike almost every tzaddik of his day, who felt it was their responsibility to uh, to assist, uh, the, to to daven for the Hasidim for their Parnassah and everything. Uh, the Chatzka did, he said, you come to me, we're coming to serve Hashem. We're coming to seek truth. We're coming to, like I said last year, to scream from the rooftops. Hashem hu Kim. Uh, they were not not here to be concerned about the the material world and mundane physical um, things like uh, like making a living, you know. So he said to him, so, but a chassid still came to him and said, "I need a parnasa." So Chatzka said, "Is that your biggest problem?" He said, "Yes, that's my biggest problem. My wife and children are going hungry." So the Chatzka said, "Then go ahead and daven." So the chassid responds, "I don't know how to daven." So the Kutzka looks at him and says, so Parnassah is not your biggest problem if you don't know how to daven. And one of the best lines that I could you know, endlessly say over, uh, cite the Kutzka, is what he said about mimicking, about mimicking someone else and being your own person. Don't be what someone else is. Is that he said, if I am I, because you are you, and you are you, because I am I, then I am not I, and you are not you. But if I am I, because I, I am I, and you are you, because you are you, then I am I, and you are you. And that uh, really brings out, I think it summarizes it. And with that and all in mind, we can come to the story of what happened. What was the breakdown? What was the crisis in Kutsk? There was opposition to the way of cuts. The tzaddikim in Galicia and uh, Sadiger, the, the originer, um, were opposed to the way of Kutsk. Um, the originer, actually, still in origin at the time. Uh, he, he was too radical, he was too dismissive, he was too different, he had a different approach. And, uh, and there was, so there was growing opposition within the Hasidic world. Um, to to the the way of Pshischa originally, and especially to the radical uh, way of Kutsk and what was going on there. So we come to the year 1839, uh, 1840, and the, the year 1840 needs its own episode. Today it has its own website and its own podcast and its own everything, uh, but this, the story of Kutsk also happened really in 1839, but it was the Jewish year of Tough Reish, which, which is associated with 1840, because most of the year was 1840. Um, so what was happening in Kutsk is that, that the Kutsker, and he was trying to bring along his Hasidim, were reaching for ideals that, that were impossible, that were impossible for the Hasidim, a search for pure truth, a, to reconcile all the contradictions in in the world, in the mystical world, in the philosophical world, in 
in Hasidus, in the Torah, in everything, and, and, and to be completely unconcerned with the mundane of life and to only be striving for perfection. And it just, it, it wasn't, he wasn't getting that, that, that responsiveness from the Hasidim. The Hasidim were coming to him for brachas and the Hasidim were still concerned about their families and their livelihood. And, and even he himself was having a challenging time reconciling everything and the, to reach this perfection and these ideals. And he had some very close Hasidim. Um, his closest Hasidim were Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Liner, who was the Ishbitzer, he became the Ishbitzer. And he ran the base Medrash. He was like uh, the Rosh Yeshiva, I guess we could call it. wasn't an official Yeshiva, of course, but the, the Hasidim who hung around the base Medrash, he was in charge. Um, he gave the shear, if there was a shear, or he answered the questions. He was tremendous Talmud Chacham. There was Rabbi Shemayr, the, uh, the Gerab, eventually Rabbi Shemayr Alter. He had a different last name at the time. And uh, he was eventually, with the Kutzker's second marriage, he was his brother-in-law. And there was also Rabbi Hersh Tomashover, who lived in Kutsk, actually. He was there all the time. The other ones came and went. Uh, he lived, he was the closest, uh, you know, like the associate. He was like a secretary. He, he took care of him. Um, and there was other, you know, close Hasidim, Rabbi Chilmeir of Gustinin and Rabbi Chanachanach of Alexander. There was other, other close Hasidim, and there was the core group. And then there was the, the many, many Hasidim who came and went, who visited. Sometimes they stayed, they hung around, made a Lachayim. The base Medrash in Kutsk. Um, where the, the Kutzker's house was adjacent to, so there was the Hasidic regulars, and then there was uh, visitors who would come. There's actually a song that uh, that would that we have till today, a Yiddish song that the visitors to Kutsk would sing when they would go in their wagons, in their horse and wagons uh, to Kutsk, and it was like the the description was like a like a pilgrimage to the base of Mikdash, and going to Kutsk was equated with going to the base of Mikdash. Um, apparently many people would come. Apparently there was, the, the descriptions are of thousands of people coming. So the Kutzker's troubles uh, continue, and he goes into a, a certain uh, depression um, because his ideals weren't being met and his Hasidim weren't uh, reaching what he expected out of them. There was not enough of this pure truth. He tried to get rid of the Hasidim. He tried to get rid of the masses coming to him because he didn't want any compromises. Um there's always a question in the Hasidic movement, was it founded for the masses, which is the common uh, conception, or was it founded for the elite, um, which which would sur- surprise many, and that really deserves a topic of its own, but it was a little bit of both. Uh, there were many, many times in the history of the Hasidic movement where it was very clear that this was a very elitist approach, notably the Baal Shem Tov himself, who didn't found the movement, um, he never intended to, and the movement developed after his passing, which I spoke about another time. But um, but the cuts for sure was like that. By the way, on the other hand, well, there's, the assumption always is is that the uh, Lithuanian Torah world, the base medrash of the Vilna Gaon and his students were elitist. The the and and the Hasidic movement was for the the masses. You know, it's to a certain extent, the stereotype is true, but to a certain extent, it could even be described as the opposite, because you look through the Nefesh HaChayim, um, he's describing how the, uh, he's criticizing the Hasidic uh, uh, ideal that everything has to be Lishma, and the study of Torah has to be Lishma, and for its pure, uh, only for its pure sake, and not for any other ulterior motive. And the, and the Nefesh HaChayim says, no, anyone can do it. It's for everyone. The study of Torah is even Shalai Lishma. 
and uh, it's for everyone. And it seems to be that he's talking to the masses, whereas the Hasidic leaders who are saying, no, everything has to be pure, and the Tara Samachshava, and, and it's all for Dveikas, and everything is so it's a very high mystical ideal, which very, very few, only the elite can get to. All right, either way, so without getting into it, and again, it's a topic that, I, that needs a, a lot more development, so um, it's for another time, but in Kutsk, it definitely was, was for an elite, and, and the masses were coming to him, and he didn't like it, he didn't want to compromise. So what happens is is that it comes to a head. And according to many versions of the story, it happened on Yenelel Shabbos, um, which may not have ever happened. This, this Shabbos uh, story may, yes, have happened. Um, and there was this confrontation, the, the, uh, the Kutzker on this Shabbos, this Friday night, he, according to the story that it happened on, on Shabbos, so um, he he broke down. There was some sort of breakdown. Afterwards, there was uh, the both maskilim, um, who were anti-Hasidic, and they used this this rumor, this story, as as good, you know, fuel uh, for the fire against their war against uh, the Hasidic movement in the nineteenth century, and Hasidic groups that opposed Kutsk, such as Ishbit, such as some of the groups in Gal- the. Uh, the uh, groups in Galicia, they they said all kinds of stories that happened uh, that the that the Kutzker did things that were inappropriate. It was Shabbos, and he said things that were blasphemous or borderline apicarsis, and he you know he screamed out less din, less dying, is you know, and and and, and there's and, and all kinds of rumors. It's unsubstantiated, there's no sources from the time period that anything like that happened, and it seems to have been um, uh, mixed up, actually, uh, fascinatingly enough, with a different story, a completely different story that happened 30 years later, because the the first sources of the story only appeared uh, 40, 50 years after it happened, and, um, and it seemed to have gotten mixed up with another story that where it did happen, similar story, where uh, the Rizhiner's son, I've spoken about him several times, Bernio of, Bernio of Liova, who was a Hasidic Rebbe who left his Hasidim, and he joined uh, Maskilim in Chernovitz until he was brought to his brother in Sadiger a couple of months later. Um, but he, those type of stories did happen with him, something about Shabbos and something about things he said publicly to the Hasidim, to his family, to whatever. Um, so they transposed those sayings and that story onto the Kutzker. But what it is clear is, is that it, you know, it's no smoke without a fire. It's something did happen and he had some sort of breakdown. He reached a boiling point where he couldn't handle it anymore and he couldn't keep it inside. And, um, and he, and he, um, he either had a nervous breakdown or he fell into a complete depression. And he wasn't able to function anymore as a Rebbe. And whether that happened on this Shabbos or at a different point uh, is up is debatable. We don't know exactly when it happened. Um, there's a whole story that it happened on Shabbos Parshas Toldais that he suffered a breakdown, and uh, and he got sick, and he was spent the entire winter and the and the uh, and almost the whole next year in bed, sick until he recovered. Um, and during that time, he remained uh, secluded, already cut off from the Hasidim at that point, even before his big uh, isolation afterwards. And um, it was during that time 
that Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Liner gathered a large gathering of Hasidim around him. Um, because he was around, and he was the leading Hasid, and he also felt that, that there was, you know, there's different, they had different approaches to leadership. Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Liner did not like it that the Kutzker was slowly cutting himself off from his Hasidim, was becoming more distant in the time leading up to the Yenelel Shabbos, to that Lel Shabbos, um, before the Kutzker's breakdown. And the, the Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Liner felt that the Hasidim needed a leader. And the Kutzker wasn't leading because he was too demanding and he was too isolating himself and he was too dismissive of the Hasidim's mundane needs. And the Kutzker said, we can't compromise. And the Matreus of Liner said, it's not a compromise, it's leading the Hasidim for who they are. And this was a dispute about leadership, about what the proper approach to leadership is. Do we compromise? Do we allow the purity of the truth in Kutzk to be watered down to cater to the needs of the Hasidim? And the Kutzker said no. And the Matreus of Liner, the Ishbitzer, said yes. And uh, during the time when the Kutzker is not around, Sir Matriasif Liner got more popular because the Hasidim were attracted to him. He was there. He was there for them. Um, the, the coming, that coming Simchas Taira after this uh, happened. So customarily, Matriasif Liner would get the sixth Hakafa, which in the Hasidic circles was the most desired Hakafa. And he understood that he was not going to be getting it that year because of the growing distance between the two. The Kutzker had heard that Ramad Yosef Liner was, was becoming, uh, in his place, a leader in his own town, in his own base medrash, in a place where he was. So he made his own akafas in, uh, in a different part of the neighborhood, in a different part of town. And he left Kutz forever, Kutzk forever after Zimchas Taira. So it started on a Shabbos, probably Shabbos Parshas told us, and a year later, the final break between Ishbitz and Kusk happened um, on Simchas Taira. Now, like I said, there's different. that's the basic uh, gist of what happened. There's different versions of how the details were. Um, like I said, the Maskilim and the ones who opposed Kusk and later opposed Ger, they, they, they wanted to say, much more extreme versions of what happened, which, like I said, is probably untrue. There aren't any real good sources for it. Um, like, And it's probably a confusion with the Bernie Friedman story of Liova, which happened 30 years later. And uh, and there's even a, a very sharp... We know that there was something. One of the only uh, primary sources that we have from the time is a letter from the Gareba, from the Chidush Yarim. And he writes this very sharp letter. Now he uh, he writes in there that these evil people are spreading rumors about the Kutzker about what happened, and it's lies. It's not true, and uh, nothing of the sort happened. Everything's normal here in Kutzker. I was, excuse me, I was just there for Shabbos, and and everything's fine. There's nothing to worry about. Um, and and the Kutzker even came out. The Rebbe came out, and he spoke to them. He was there. He, he participated in the Shabbos. I mean, he was trying to dispel the rumor even of his isolation. Um, but uh, but it's clear that that uh, that that something happened because the fact that he was trying to dispel those rumors meant, and especially that he had to be so sharp about it, which was very not much his uh, nature. Yosef Liner, he felt, and he said this. He said this to the Hasidim when they were waiting for the Kutzker to come out, and he wouldn't come out because he was. You know, going through his his thing, um, the Rambam Yisrael Liner said 
The sulam has to be mutzav artsa, even if it's reshay magia hashamayma. The latter has to be grounded. It has to be on the on the eretz. It has to be on in this world. It has to be with the Hasidim, even if it's reshay magia hashamayma. Even if you're up in the heavens. Even if you're so lofty and you have the lofty ideals, you need to lead. You need to be with the Hasidim as a leader. We're not angels. We're human beings. Um, which is an interesting point because which substantiates the fact that, that this Yenelel Shabbos, that Lel Shabbos, took place on the time of Parshas Toldes and Vayetze, because the Torah that Rabbi Tchiesef Liner and the Ishbits, and in Kutsk, both sides of the uh, of the uh, dispute, used Torah from the Parsha of Toldes and Vayetze to support their position. In Ishbits, they said this whole thing of Sula of Artsa, and um, they said more. He said, the Ishbitzer said, Yaakov was Vayetze. He left. Vayetze Yaakov Vibersheva, Vayelacharani. He left. His father and his grandfather were, Avram and Yitzchak were just spiritual. They were totally spiritual. They, they were, they were, uh, you know, they lived in the upper, upper spheres, in the upper worlds. But Yaakov, he had to deal with the mundane. He had to deal with the world of Lavan. So he left. So he was describing his own leaving that he had to leave because you know, sometimes there needs to be a leader who deals with the mundane needs of the Hasidim as well. Whereas in Kutsk, and specifically in Sachachav, a grandson of the Kutsker, he said that Tzadik sometimes is too holy to be with the people. So sometimes he has to hide and be isolated and be secluded from the people. And he said Yaakov Avinu was isolated from the world for 14 years because the world couldn't handle his light and and because he and he can't handle the world, so the same thing here. My grandfather, the Kutsker, was isolated. He was cut off from the world for twenty years because uh, the world couldn't handle his light, and he wasn't able to uh, to to handle the world. One of the times he came out of his isolation, he said the Welt stinked, <laughs> the world stinks, and he went back into his room. Now, there's a lot written about their Torah approaches, the differences in their Torah approach between the Kutsk and then Ger approach, and their philosophy, and outlook, and worldview, and especially the Ishbit's worldview, and Taira. There's loads written about. There's Sfarim, and doctorates, and everything, whatnot. Of course, I'm not going to delve into that, because it's not my forte. I don't know much about it. Um, But uh, I recently got a letter writer. Someone told me that I do an injustice by focusing just on the history, and not on their thought, or philosophy, or their Taira. So I guess you you have an injustice being done to you. Uh, you'll have to listen to another podcast. You'll have to listen to a Torah podcast as well because uh, I'm not equipped to deal with that. One of those who left with um, with the, with the Ishbitzer was Reb Leibel Eger. Reb Leibel Eger was a grandson of Reb Kiva Eger um, who, who joined the Hasidic movement. First he came to Kutsk, but his reception to Kutsk was so unwelcoming that uh, that he he didn't feel it was for him, and eventually he left with the Marchesef Liner to Ishbitz. He when he came, he was from a r- aristocratic rabbinic family with you know substantial financial uh, means, and he came dressed well with a nice hat. And Kutsk, they didn't go for yichus; they didn't care about uh, um, materialism or yichus or anything. So the first thing they did was knock off his hat. Then they started making fun of his yichas. Oh, your father's Rabbi Schleimager and your grandfather's Rabbi Kivager. And they started making fun of him. And they, and they, and they, he, he couldn't deal with it. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle the sharp, 
uh, truth of, of, of Kutsk and their, their manhandling. Um, so he goes with Ishbit. So that's one of the, a lot of the Hasidim did. Most of the Hasidim did. David Bashevkin, all the Hasidim, they go with, with the Ishbitzer and they become Hasidim of Ishbitz, but there are a substantial amount that, that, uh, that stay in Kutsk uh, as well. And the Kotzker at that time, when Rabbi Chesif Liner leaves, he decides he's not coming out. He's secluded. He stays in isolation. Now, there's of course rumors about that. Was this isolation? It remains for 20 years till he till he passed away, almost 20 years later in 1859. Was it voluntary or was it forced? So the ones who interpret Yenalel Shabbos and say that there was something blasphemous that took place and something with the Shabbos candles that took place. So they'll say, ah, oh, he was forced into isolation. Abersh Thomas Shavar and, and the Chidusharim forced him into isolation because they were scared. What's he going to say and what's he going to do? So they had to put up a front. But again, that's questionable sources. So it, it seems that it was voluntary. He decided voluntarily to go into, into isolation. Um, and then the other question is, is that was it a partial seclusion or was it complete? And it also, and for many years it was believed that he was completely secluded from the world. It seems that that's also not true. He used to have interactions with his family members quite regularly. He would study with his grandchildren. He interacted with his children, with his wife, his kids, very regularly. And with his close chassidim. Uh, the Chidusharim went in pretty regularly. And the the Kutzker himself would come out occasionally, several times a year, to the base medrash, to the Hasidim, to the to the masses who would be waiting for him. Um, so it seems that it, even the uh, seclusion was only partial and not total. By the way, when we go to Kutsk, there there's a house that most tour guides point out as as his house, and uh, this is the house where he was secluded and he was isolated from the world for twenty years, and they stand outside his house. So, Aus did was owned by a member of the Morgenstern family at some point. The only issue with the that the the this myth is that the house was built after the Kutzker's passing, like well after. So it's unlikely that he would have been in that house. Um, now, uh, now the the, uh, the animosity continues for generations. Um, for years, uh, both from the Galicia Hasidim and from Ishbitz, which became Radzin afterwards, there was this sharp divide between the House of Kutsk, which became Ger, and, and, and Sokolov, and Sachachov, and uh, several other, Biala, and several other branches of Polish Hasidus. Um, and th- that, that animosity continued because of the events surrounding that Lel Shabbos and the breakdown of the Kutsker and the divide the dispute about the leadership between Ramarche Yosef Liner, the Ishbitzer, and his Rebbe, the Kutzker, and it lasted uh, pretty much uh, until the Second uh, World War. So that's a little bit about, um, again, about the Kutzk and Ishbitz dispute. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sponsorships, lectures, sources, uh, virtual tours, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Jay Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.